Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful to be here to share God's word with you. Let us uh, enter a time of prayer before we open up the scripture. Uh, Lord, we are thankful to be gathered together, both on campus and those joining with us online, to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Lord, as we open up the word of God this morning, your word, your truth, Lord, I pray that we would receive it in faith. Lord, let the Spirit of God reveal it to us. Let the Spirit of God give us desire and power to live in the truth that you declare over us as your children. Children by grace through faith. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Philemon. Philemon will be in verses 8 through 16 this morning. If you are joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I'd encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1101. 1101. If you have your own Bible and you're trying to find uh, this particular book, it's only one page, so you may miss it. Uh, it's in between Titus and Hebrews in the New Testament. So if you get to Titus, go over uh, to the right one book, and there it'll be. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. So maybe a paragraph on one page, a paragraph on the other page. Uh, this is an amazing uh, letter that uh, Paul uh, writes to Philemon, and just as a way of introduction, this is our second message in this particular letter. We'll have one more uh, next week as we finish it off. But just as a way of reminder, uh, Paul uh, writes this letter to Philemon. This is really a companion letter because the, the main letter would have been uh, the book of Colossians, uh, but Paul includes a, a companion letter to go specifically to Philemon. This letter would have been written sometime around AD 60, so Paul was uh, experiencing his first uh, Roman imprisonment there. And though this letter is short, uh, 25 verses, it is packed with amazing gospel truth that really centers around uh, the importance of our relationships uh, between brothers and sisters in Christ, really the fellowship that we can have uh, together that is based on uh, the blessings that we receive. I mean, think about the blessings that we have as followers of Christ. Uh, there, there's unity there. There's the potential for forgiveness and, and fellowship and restoration and reconciliation, all that stuff packed together. And, and if we really think about it, relationships are hard, Right. Uh, there's not a single person in this uh, sanctuary or those joining with us online that has not experienced some type of relational pain. And I'm not just talking about relational pain with anybody. I'm talking about relational pain within uh, the body of Christ. And so this is why this letter is so, so important. And, and what Paul does is he writes this letter specifically to Philemon. We know that it's going to be shared with the house church that's meeting in, in his home. Uh, Philemon is a brother in Christ. Uh, Paul leads uh, Philemon to uh, faith uh, in, in Ephesus a few years earlier than this, and uh, he writes uh, to Philemon because Philemon had, had a, a slave by the name of Onesimus, uh, Onesimus for, we don't know exactly what happened, but he, he did uh, Philemon wrong. Potentially, he stole some things um, from Philemon, and he begins to, to flee. He runs away, right? How far did he go away? Uh, we have a map that we saw last week. We'll look at it again uh, this week. So he it's in Colossae, roughly Colossae area, and he goes to Rome. So you have 1,300 miles approximately uh, that uh, Philemon, uh, it, uh, his slave Onesimus, is just running away, right? And his past catches up to him. Uh, by God's grace and intervention, uh, Onesimus finds himself uh, with Paul in Rome. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus, and guess what? By the grace of God, Onesimus comes to faith in Christ, and through their time of just sharing life together, uh, Onesimus opens up and, and shares about this guy named Philemon that he is wrong. And guess what? Paul says, I know this guy, right? I, I led him to Christ, right? And so uh, Paul does what we should do as followers of Christ. Do everything you can. Leverage the gospel for everything you can in order to what? Seek again the unity that we have in Christ, fellowship that we have in Christ. It's going to require forgiveness, right? That, that is bare minimum, forgiveness. 
And that forgiveness can lead to reconciliation and restoration. And that is Paul's hope. And so Paul sends him back uh, to uh, Philemon to seek restoration in that relationship. And so what we'll do this week is what we did last week. We'll read the entire letter so we can get a pretty good idea of what's happening here. We'll recap uh, verses 1 through 7 from last week, but we'll really focus in on verses 8 through 16. Does that sound good? Yes, yes, yes. You, that extra hour is helping out, right? All right. So let's, uh, I'll read the letter beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, uh, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith uh, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy. I have received much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That's what we looked at last week. Now the new verses. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was Parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so last week, we looked at those first uh, seven verses, and we saw four very important uh, observations in those verses. Again, we're talking about fellowship within uh, the, uh, the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's what we find. That observation number one is we are family. Because of the work of Christ, uh, we are family. And that's important. We're a diverse people, right? And because of the work of Christ, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your political views, your social economic status. We are one at the foot of the cross, right? Praise be to God to that. That doesn't mean that that diversity stops, right? All right? So that's important. So he unites God through his grace, through the blood of Christ, unites us together as a family. And as a family, the second observation that we see is that we are to express love for one another. There should be a genuine love and thankfulness because of what God is doing in and through us, right? And, and that's where Paul finds himself. He, he is thanking the Lord. In a time where social media didn't exist, phone calls didn't exist, text messages doesn't exist, he keeps on hearing of Philemon's love for all the saints. And he's thankful for that. And so it's a love that expresses itself 
It's also uh, within the family that we seek to encourage one another. We are to leverage all the grace that God has given to us uh, for the encouragement of the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. And that's what we see. And again, uh, Paul is where? He's in prison. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard, a Roman soldier. And what is he doing? He's thanking uh, Philemon. It's refreshing his heart. That word refresh is an amazing word. It's a military word. Think about a, a military battle where you're just marching and you're spent with energy. And then all of a sudden you get a place of rest and it just refreshes your soul. And so here's Paul in prison and he says, you are refreshing my soul. And why is all this possible? Because as a family, we commit to honor the Lord. We commit to honor the Lord. As the church comes together in relationship to one another, seeking to honor and glorify the Lord, we are tremendously blessed. And I love verse 6. It says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. One of the blessings that we receive within the family of God as we seek to honor the Lord is the blessing of the power of Christ being manifested in us and through us. When that love is genuine, when we think about unity and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation, when we think about those things, it's not just that we do a study on it, right? That's not necessarily where the power is. The power is that we take the truth of the gospel and we actually apply it into our relationships, right? So you want to talk about forgiveness, that's one thing, but you want to experience forgiveness, man, there's power in that. And so that's what we have at our disposal in the gospel, and that's what Paul does. Paul anchors this appeal. Again, we, he has not mentioned Onesimus yet, right? We have the benefit of looking ahead, but Paul at this point has not mentioned anything about this. He's just setting the stage. And now he's going to give an appeal to Philemon based on the gospel itself. And what are these pleas? What is the appeal that he makes? And think about your relationships together. Think about our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. When we think about the tension that we have at times, things that bend and sometimes break, right? What is it that we're going to appeal to, to, to bring about forgiveness and Lord willing, reconciliation and restoration, right? What is it that we appeal to? Paul talks about those things. One, it's an appeal based on gospel love. An appeal based on gospel love. Paul is getting to the meat of his letter this morning, right? So he's going to hit us real good. Verse 8, he says, accordingly, therefore, is what the word is. Therefore, based on everything that we just talked about in verses 1 through 7, accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. In other words, Paul says something amazing. He says, I could pull the apostle card here. God has given me the authority within the church and I could command you to do what is right, but he doesn't do that. He says in verse 9, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man. And I love it. Paul says, I'm an old man. Some translation says, I'm aged, right? How many, how, how, how many of you think that Paul is 50 years old about right now? How many of you think he's 60? That's the right answer, by the way. He's about 60 years old. And he says, I'm, a, I'm an old man. I'm an aged man. But he's not just talking about his age. Again, people live a lot longer now than they did back then. He connects it with something. He says, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. We already saw that already in verse 1. So why is Paul bringing that up again? I think it's important. I think Paul is reminding him of this detail, the same detail that he gave in verse 1, because Paul wants to remind Philemon that he's not being singled out. He's not just saying, Philemon, you need to do some hard things in your walk with the Lord. Paul says, I too have done some hard things in my life. 
And this idea of being aged and a prisoner of Christ, he's talking about the suffering that he has experienced as a follower of Jesus Christ. What kind of suffering? In fact, when, and when he closes the letter to the churches in Galatia, he says this in Galatians 6.17. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I what? I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And when Paul talks about bearing on his body the marks of Jesus, he's referring to a Greek word that talks about being branded in the Greek culture. A slave would be branded, right, to identify with a master. And Paul says, I am being branded. I am being identified with my heavenly master. And how am I being branded with that? I am being branded with that through suffering. And what do we know about the sufferings that Paul experienced? We know that Paul was almost stoned to death. We also know that later on in Paul's life, he received lashes. He was beaten with rods. He, he was shipwrecked. He was in danger from robbers. He, he, was only, he was also attacked by his own people. He experienced hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, and great anxiety. So what is Paul doing in this verse? Paul is preparing Philemon. I'm getting ready to ask you to do something really hard. I'm getting ready to ask you to receive Onesimus back. But I myself bear the marks of following Christ too. You're not the only one being called to do hard things. And guess what? When it comes to forgiveness, granting forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, guess what? That's not always easy, right? And so Paul is identifying with Philemon. You know, one of the aims of the ministry, the ministry that you're called to, the ministry that I am called to, is gospel love. When Paul mentors young Timothy in the faith, that's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love. And what kind of love is that? That issues from a pure heart, so it's a love that has the right motives, and a good conscience, it's a love that is based on integrity, and a sincere faith, it's a love that is genuine, it's based on the very character of God. Paul not only has a deep love for Philemon, he also has a deep love for Onesimus. Listen to what he says in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, so he's talking to Philemon still, for my child Onesimus, so this is the first time we hear this name, right? whose father I became in my imprisonment. So this verse 10 is talking about how, how Paul led Onesimus to Christ. Now we lose some of the power of this verse in our English translation. Why is that important? Because in the Greek translation, Onesimus is at the very end of the verse. So think about it like this. I appeal to you for my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment, Onesimus. Can you, can you imagine the tension that is happening? Again, Philemon is in his home, his own home standing before the house church that is there. He's some type of leader within the church in his home. And he's standing there. And as he's reading this letter, this personal letter that was given to him by Paul, also to the house church there, guess who's standing next to him? Onesimus is standing next to him. And the one who has wronged him is now what? He's now a follower of Christ, no longer just a slave, but a part of the family. And Paul writes to Philemon, my brother Philemon, I send my child in the faith based on the love found in the gospel. Receive Onesimus not only back into your home, but more importantly, where? Back into your heart. Paul wants Philemon to extend love to Onesimus in the same way that Jesus has extended love to him. And what kind of love is that? 1 John 4 verses 10 and 11. And this is love that we uh, have loved God, but that he loved us and sent. In other words, he takes the initiative. How does he do it? He sends his son to be the propitiation, the substitute, the sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if or since God so loved us, richly loved us, we also ought to love 
one another. We ought to graciously and richly love one another. Why? Based on the finished work of Christ. This appeal for renewed fellowship is anchored in the love found in the gospel. And why is that love so, so important when we think about our relationships with one another? Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. He says, above all, so top priority, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, don't stop loving one another. Be intentional. The word earnestly is a, is a word that a, a racer would experience as they're racing and they're, they're running a race and they're straining and they're striving. Uh, why? Why that kind of love? Since, it, since love covers a multitude of sins. You see, covering love, loves to the point of what? Forgiveness. And one of the hardest acts of obedience that you and I will experience in this life is forgiving someone who has wronged you. Now think about this for just a minute because this is huge. Gospel love doesn't mean we overlook the sin. That's not what it's saying. We live in a culture that says that love is about just looking over the sin, not addressing the sin. That is not love at all. Gospel love means that we do confront the sin, but it confronts it with grace and with mercy and with forgiveness. It's represented in the very love that Jesus has expressed to us. By his love, he extended grace, mercy, and forgiveness. When others sin against you, it's the love of Christ that protects you and it protects them. It's the type of love that seeks one's greatest good even when they have sinned against you. This is the life that we are called to and in powered by because of the gospel Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 2 Paul writing to the church there in Ephesus says therefore be imitators of God as beloved children guess what you and I are greatly loved by God and we have the opportunity and the privilege to imitate to reflect our heavenly father how so verse 2 and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God and what's one of the results of you and I Abiding in Christ, abiding in his love, and reflecting that love to one another in Christ. What's one of the results? Well, Jesus talks about this in John 13. We've seen this verse uh, multiple times, but I think it's important for us to go back to. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So true forgiveness, which leads to potentially reconciliation and restoration, must be, where, must be anchored where? In the love of the gospel. And when that love is anchored in the gospel, guess what? The world takes notice, right? What a beautiful promise that the Lord gives to us. So Paul makes an appeal based on gospel love. He also makes an appeal based on gospel power. Again, fellowship has been broken, right? So what are we going to appeal to to bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration? First, we appeal to gospel love. Second, we appeal to gospel power. Paul appeals based on the power of Christ and he talks about the power of Christ in Onesimus' life. He says in verses 11 through 13, he says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. The beauty and the power of the gospel is on full display here. At the very moment that Philemon hears the name Onesimus, I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. You have to imagine that something is welling up in his heart and in his mind. Was it pain? Was it anger? Was it bitterness? Was it grief? Because things didn't happen the way they were supposed to happen. 
What's welling up in his heart? We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul wants Philemon to know that Onesimus is no longer who he used to be. Onesimus becomes a follower of Christ and his life is forever changed. Onesimus used to be no good to you. In fact, he's been nothing but trouble, right? He has rebelled against your love. But now, do you hear the words of grace there? But now, amazing words of God's grace. But now he is indeed useful to me and to you. And it's interesting because the name Onesimus means beneficial or useful. And guess what? In Christ, he's finally living up to that name, right? He's being beneficial. He's being useful. How is that possible? Why is that possible? Because he has a new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, we are given new loves, new desires, new power, a new life. Why? Because we have a new master. The shackles of the old life have been removed. Before he was under condemnation, now he has been set free, right? Praise be to God, Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Onesimus, who was condemned by Roman law, has been set free by the grace of the gospel, but he still needs to face his past, right? I mean, how many of y'all recognize that? You did some things prior to Christ, and you're still facing the consequences of those things. And that's what Onesimus has to do. He has to face his past sin. Onesimus has to turn back and acknowledge what he has done. And this is amazing because Paul doesn't send Onesimus back on his own. He doesn't communicate in any way, you made your bed, now sleep in it. He sends someone to, to help him, to be an advocate for him, to help encourage the way of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. We see this in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Paul sends someone by the name of Tychicus with him. He's a beloved fellow follower of Christ. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that you, he may encourage your hearts. So he's a Barnabas in such a way. Verse 9, he says, and with him is who? Anisimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So think about it. Take this. He has... He has Colossians in the companion book of Philemon. He goes to the church. The church knows him. The church recognizes him. And who is he with? He's with Onesimus, right? And Onesimus gets to test, have a testimony of God's power in Onesimus's life. Onesimus says, or the scripture says, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. I mean, I mean just put yourself in that, that room again, a small room where everybody knows your name, Right? And you hear those words, I mean, you, you just, the ears got to be just firing on all cylinders. What did you just say? Onesimus, my beloved brother and faithful one? You just got to think the questions are going. Don't, Paul, don't you realize this guy is a criminal? Don't you recognize the past that this person has? You know, he stole and ran off, right? And Paul says, yeah. Yeah, he was honest about that. I know everything and more, but he's not who he used to be. God has done a gracious and powerful work in Onesimus' life. Paul knows it so well that he says what? I wish I could keep him with me so that we can serve alongside one another 
for the sake of the gospel. But we also have an opportunity to see the power of the gospel at work in Philemon's life. How so? Verse 14, the scripture says, but I, speaking of Paul, preferred to do nothing without your, speaking of Philemon's consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. You see, Philemon has an opportunity to display God's power and the way that he responds to Onesimus. Paul isn't looking for the short-term gain, but the long-term win. Paul is expressing the confidence he has in the gospel to bring Philemon and Onesimus back together again, but it can't be forced. How many of y'all experienced that before? That you desire to have forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation, and you recognize something. It cannot be forced, right? You can be a willing partner in that relationship, but if the other one's not, guess what? It ain't happening, right? So it can't be forced, and Paul recognizes that. Paul knew that ultimately Philemon had to make the call, and Paul knows that the inward posture of his heart is just as important, if not more important, than his outward actions. The power of the gospel is not just about obedience, but the right kind of obedience. Again, Paul could have demanded that Philemon take him back, but he knows that he doesn't just want any obedience. He wants the right kind of obedience. I mean, parents recognize this. I mean, it is a burden. It is exhausting to constantly have to tell our children what to do, recognizing that the goal isn't just outward behavior, right? You want to capture their heart, right? Man, that's the work of the gospel. But yet we forget about that. And so Philemon knows or Paul knows that more than anything, I want the gospel to capture your heart, Philemon. Not just outward behavior, but the reason why. I want you to have right motives on why you're doing what you're doing. Paul uh, talks about this a little bit when he's writing to the church in Corinth uh, during a time when uh, the church in Corinth had promised to to take up a love offering uh, for the church in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the church in Jerusalem was experiencing uh, famine and persecution, and they had great need. And so Corinth, the church in Corinth said, yeah, we're going to bring you a love offering. Well, a year goes by. They still hadn't done it yet. And so Paul addresses that in his letter, and he says this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 7 through 8. He says, each one of them must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not regretfully, not begrudgingly, right? Or under compulsion, not by manipulation. I'm not twisting your arm on this one. For God loves what? A cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, that means contentment, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You hear what Paul's doing? Paul is getting to the heart. Paul doesn't want you just to do something to do it. He wants you to have the right heart and while you're doing it. Why? Because that is truly the power of the gospel at work in your life and my life. So going back to Philemon, and Paul's appeal for him to receive Onesimus back, it's one of love. It's one of love that rests where? In the power of the gospel. Here's the reality. The sins of other people. When you are wronged by someone, sometimes it reveals more about you than it does about them, right? And that's what Paul is recognizing here. I know this is tough. I know this is hard. But as the gospel reveals your error, your dissatisfaction, your discontentment, all those things that you're trying to control and manipulate, as the gospel reveals that, I want the gospel to change that heart. That's what Philemon is, what Paul is desiring from Philemon. Anytime we are wronged by someone else, we can choose to hold them captive to their past or we can choose to free them for what might become of their future, right? It doesn't mean the boundaries don't change. It doesn't mean that you're automatically trusting them. It doesn't mean that you're automatically back to where you were before, right? but you are forgiving them. And we are gonna talk more about forgiveness next week. You see, the power of the gospel reminds us that Jesus changes lives, right? 
His grace makes us what we cannot be on our own. That's what he does. And he will call us to do hard things. So we may need to seek forgiveness or we may need to grant forgiveness. And both of those can be extremely difficult. Are we going to choose to rely on the power of the gospel that is working in us and through us? Are we going to be held captive uh, to the desires of the flesh, places where bitterness wells up, unrighteous anger, control and captivity, vengeance, cold shoulder, right? You ever avoided somebody in the hallway? We laugh about it. It happens right here on campus, right? So he makes an appeal based on the power of the gospel. And then lastly, he makes an appeal based on gospel authority, gospel authority. In other words, when it comes to relational hurt that you experience and our call to forgiveness of that person, we are trusting in the sovereignty and the promises and the goodness of God, right? How does Paul impact this? Well, verse 15, he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. So Paul says, for this is why he, he speaking of Onesimus, parted from you, Philemon, for a while, that you may have him back forever. Again, understand the weight of this for just a moment. We understand relational hurt. We understand all those different things. So think about this. The man who has caused you harm and pain, he's been out of your life for a while, right? But that daily reminder of hurt and betrayal has lingered with you every day, and now that person is standing right in front of you again, right? And I know the burning question is why. Why did this happen to me? Why did I have to experience rebellion, the rebellion of someone who I deeply loved? Why do I have to experience the emptiness of betrayal and the grief of what could have been and should have been? And it's there with great compassion. Paul says, Philemon, my dear brother in the Lord, I don't know why, but perhaps it's temporal, his temporal betrayal and rebellion, as hurtful as it was, was allowed by God under his divine and gracious authority to draw him into a right relationship with the Lord and to change his life for eternity, maybe. You see, Paul is encouraging Philemon to see beyond just the here and now and to trust in God's authority, sovereignty, and goodness. In other words, is it possible for God to take the sinful things that you do and turn them into good? Is it possible for God to take the evil things that are done against you and turn them in to good. Based on the authority of God and his gospel, the answer is yes, right? I think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was one of 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, Joseph, unfortunately, was the favored son of Jacob. Don't have favorites, right? Because of this, the 11 brother, other 11 brothers hated Joseph uh, to the point where they wanted him dead. So at the age of 19 or 17, they throw him in a pit, and then as these uh, traders were coming from Egypt. They decided, well, let's just sell him off. Let's like a little bit of money. Let's sell him off as a slave. And so that's what he does. That's, that's what they do. So at 17, he's away from his family, his home. He's in Egypt, a foreign land. He's now a slave. And over a series of events, uh, through false imprisonment and all those things, by the grace of God, uh, when he's about 30 years old, uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, makes Joseph second in command, right? So 13 years, he's been experiencing this hardship. Now, all of a sudden, he's in a place of tremendous power. And during that time, uh, there were seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So people across the land were without food and necessities for life. And by God's authority, what happens? Joseph's brothers 
come to Egypt looking for help. And who are they standing in front of? They're standing in front of their brother, Joseph. At first, they didn't recognize him. Joseph did. But finally, Joseph reveals himself uh, to them. And so they're reunited, not just as brothers, but also their father, Jacob. And then fast forward a little bit. uh, When we get to uh, Genesis 50, uh, 40 years approximately passed by from the time that he was sold into slavery to this point in Genesis 50 when Jacob, the father, finally dies. And in the back of their minds, these 11 brothers are thinking, man, now that daddy's gone, is Joseph going to pay us back for the wrong that we've caused? And here's Joseph's response in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant, and I love the word meant, it means calculated, right? You, what? As for you, you calculated evil against me, but God meant, or God calculated it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph is resting on the authority, the sovereignty, the goodness of God. Can you imagine the hurt, the pain, the betrayal, and the grief of all those lost years? The reality is some of, some of you can. You're experiencing that today. The question is, can you, can you lean on the promises of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the authority of God? And the, the scripture tells us yes. Listen to the promise found in Romans 8, 28 through 29. It's verses that we probably know very well, but apply them, apply them. Scripture says, and we know, so we know that this promise is a certain promise, even when we don't see it, even when we can't feel it, and we know that for those who love God, so this is a promise given to who? Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the promise given to you as the family of God. All things work together for good. Isn't that a comforting promise today? All things work together for good. All those things are not good, right? They're not easy. Some of them are extremely painful and hurtful and destructive, but we have the kind of God who is not caught off guard or caught by surprise. He's not limited in any way. We have a, the kind of God who can take evil things and work them together for good for those who are called according to his promise. Verse 20, for those who have, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does this remind us of? This, this appeal on gospel authority reminds us that God uses everything in our life, even the painful things of life, for his glory and our good. In other words, God is bigger than your pain, right? He's bigger than my pain, but yet he's with us in the pain, right? Praise God for that. The appeal is based on gospel authority, reminds us that there is hope for fellowship, even after relational pain. He says in verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see, in the eyes of Roman law, Onesimus was nothing but what? He was nothing but a slave, now a fugitive, because he ran away. Now, when we think of slavery in biblical perspective, it was nothing like what you and I think of in American history. When slavery was built on kidnapping people because of their race, and unwillingly putting them into slavery, right? That is wrong. And according to the Old Testament, when that happened, the punishment was what? Death, right? That's not the slavery that we're talking about. Slavery in the first century Roman Empire was pretty common. Roughly 30 to 40% of the population was considered a slave. Oftentimes, those slaves would be doctors, educators, lawyers, as well as servants in homes and laborers in the field. Oftentimes, someone would enter into slavery because they were experiencing extreme poverty, or because they had a debt that they could not pay back, right? And so they entered into this thing. And yet God gave tremendous provision for slaves, specifically on how they were to be treated. You go back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 15. This is what the scripture says. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, 
is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from, from you. So the year of Jubilee, right? And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As for the Lord your God has blessed you, and you shall give to him. Now why is that the case? Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Right? What is he saying? Based on how I freed you from slavery, you treat your people like that. So if they go free after that seventh year, don't send them empty handed. Make sure that they're well taken care of. But then there's something that happens in verse 16. But if he, the slave, says to you, I will not go out from you, so he's making this choice, because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an, an owl or a sharp tool and puncture, uh, puncture their hole, a hole in their ear into the door, and he shall be your slave. The word slave there is bondservant, and that's important, forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. So in other words, after this seven-year process ended, guess what? If that individual was, was so well taken care of by that master, they could choose to stay with you for life, right? As a bondservant, as a bondservant. Now think about that for a minute. In the eyes of Roman law, Onesimus was nothing but a slave, right? Convict, a fugitive. But through the eyes and the heart of the gospel, Onesimus is a bondservant. And by the grace of God, a beloved brother. Paul says, because of the authority of the gospel, I want your relationship with Onesimus to be stronger after the offense than it was before the offense. How many of y'all experienced that before? That your relationship, because of the work of Christ in both of your lives, is far greater now than it was then. That doesn't mean that you don't remember the hurt, feel the hurt, experience the pain, or experience the consequences, but there's hope in the gospel. How is this possible? You see, Jesus is the ultimate bondservant, right? By choice, he received the holes in his hands, his feet, and the one on his side, so that our relationship with our creator can be restored. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is surrendering his life. In humility, he's taking on the form of a man, and he's dying in our place. And by the authority of the gospel, the authority of the power of God, Jesus rose from the grave again so that your relationship and my relationship can be restored. Praise be to God. When the evil powers of Satan thought they won, guess what? The cross says, checkmate. The empty grave says, it's finished forever. Never again. It is done. So when you think about your relationships today, specifically within the body of Christ, in the midst of the bending, the breaking, the struggle, the pain, the past, all those different things, are you honestly making an appeal on that relationship based on gospel love? Are you making an appeal for that relationship to be restored, to seek forgiveness and reconciliation based on gospel power and based on gospel authority? You see, we can spend so much of our life asking the question of why, and I don't think there's ever gonna be an answer to be satisfactory in your pain. But we can trust the who, right? We can trust that God will do all things for those who love him for the good, for his glory and our good. Are you willing to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I really truly desire for this relationship to come back together again. You know, maybe it's not full reconciliation and restoration. We'll look at that uh, in a little bit 
in the next few weeks, but start with forgiveness, right? And Lord, I, I want to appeal based on gospel love to forgive that person. And I want to appeal uh, based on gospel power to forgive that person. And I want to appeal uh, based on the power of the gospel, the sovereignty of the gospel, the authority of the gospel to forgive that person. Whatever your decision is today, the altar will be open for you to pray. I think at the end of the day, we must recognize that our greatest relationship is first and foremost our relationship with our Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ.